Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bears. Guys and gals, mark your calendar for March 28th. The Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma Backcountry Hunters and Anglers chapters are putting on the first ever Ozark Black Bear Bonanza. This event is designed to give a ton of amazing information about hunting black bear in this part of the world. There's going to be, the the event starts at 2 o'clock and lasts till 9 o'clock. And there's going to be four main events. Number one, there's going to be a bear fat rendering demonstration, which I'm going to be doing. Number two, there's going to be a bear biologist panel. Bear biologists from Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri are coming together to do a panel to talk about all things bear in this region. Number three, we're doing a live Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Yep, the first ever live Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, complete with an owl hooting contest and some live music. Thirdly, the final event of the night will be a storytelling event. So mark your calendar, March 28th, Bentonville, Arkansas. I didn't say that yet. Bentonville, Arkansas, 
Hey, check all our, our all of our social media stuff, Bear Hunting Magazine social media, to find out more information. But you're going to want to check this out. On this podcast, I met with Hal Herring. Hal is a incredible guy. He's a longtime outdoor writer. He's also host of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Cast and Blast podcast. But he's more than that. Hal's from North Alabama and is just a unique, fun guy. And uh, I, I had a great conversation with him. You're going to enjoy this podcast. We are in Shannon County, Missouri, which is southern Missouri. I would call it the northern Ozarks. Being from Arkansas, this is like Yankee territory. Way up north. Way Other up north. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're in the Ozarks. Um, I've, I've, I've got with me Hal Herring. I'm going to introduce you in a minute more in depth, Hal. But Good. first... We got to, uh, it got cold on that boat this afternoon, it did, did it we, not? It did, and we were coming back in a pretty good old uh, small snow squall. No doubt. So this afternoon, uh, Hal and I and Brandon Butler, our mutual friend Brandon Butler, we were on the Current River. And uh, this is kind of like south central Missouri, maybe southeast. It's yeah. on the. It's probably on the eastern half of the state. Yep. It's about four and a half hours from where I live in northwest Arkansas, and we were on the Current River. This is my first time over in this part of the Ozarks. Beautiful section of the Ozarks. Yeah. A lot of public land. Big, wide. I was I was actually impressed by the size of that river. Yeah, for the, for, for sure. the drainage basins that I thought we would see, I figured it would be a smaller river. Yep. This, this river was, I don't know, there were parts of it that were probably 60, 70 yards wide. Yep. Maybe more than that. Yeah, 12 foot of water and holes and. Yeah, fast yeah. moving. Yeah. And uh we were smallmouth bass fishing. Yeah. And uh you were the and first catch them. you caught more than any of us. Yeah. <laughs> I I you did. I was mastering my side of the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah you were. You were casting over me sometimes yeah, trying to take sure. my good spots. Whatever I could get. Yeah. <laughs> I also had that braided line. Yes. And, and when you're jig fishing like that, the braided line actually is it is it is a game changer a little bit. Is it really? It is because there's no stretch in it. So whatever, whenever I was getting those light hits, I was getting them. I was. I, I, I was see what you're them. saying. Okay. It's like perch fishing or something. Yeah, I knew you had to have had some kind of advantage <laughs> over me. <laughs> now we uh, so we just fished for a couple hours this afternoon um, with uh, with Brandon's buddy. Billy, yep. uh, can you remember? Can you remember his full name? I think his last name's Smith. He has a, he Smith. has a guide service yeah. right there. Scenic River, Scenic Rivers, Scen- Scenic Rivers. Uh, Buddy, that dude can fish. Yeah, he's like he's a tournament fisherman as well. Yeah, so we were fishing smallmouth bass out of a jet boat with a trolling motor, yep. and uh, we probably caught I don't know ten or twelve in I just a say, couple hours. Yeah, for sure. Two of two of the fish were nice. Yep. What I would call brownie bass. Yep. Brandon had never heard him called that smallmouth bass. Yeah. You know, probably the two biggest ones were pushing two pounds. I think. Yeah. yeah. But just nice fish. Yeah. I just and when it's that cold, like I was saying, growing up in Alabama, like you just didn't get on the fish that much in the winter. Right. And maybe it just was for lack of trying, like because those fish were there. They were they were yeah. they were going pretty good today. They were, and he he said that this is actually 
some of the best time. I was yep. surprised to hear him say that. I, yep. I would have thought he would have said the springtime, yep. you know, deeper into the, yep. well, we're still in late there, winter. There's no people out there. Yeah. It was, we had it to ourselves. And it incredible. was freezing cold. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Running up that river. Uh, I think he said at one point we were going 21 miles an hour when we were going yep. back up river. So we were going faster when we were going with the current down river. Right. But you can feel be- every mile per hour. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm still cold. And yeah. that we got out of the water. <laughs> Two hours ago. Yeah. Uh, now, how – so I've just kind of come to know how this weekend, but I, I'd, I'd heard of you and knew of you for a while you now. You've been vice versa just recently. Yeah. yeah. So how is – just in short, I'm going to give you a short introduction that I want you to introduce yourself. But, okay. But Hal is a freelance outdoor writer. He's an author. He's, he's written a book back in the – at 2008 or so yep. about a, that a, was a gun a, book. It was, yeah, a gun book, Famous Firearms of the Old West, which was a fun, it was a fun project. Yeah. And, and, but you primarily made your living as a, as a freelance outdoor writer, working for Outdoor Life, working for Film Stream. Film Stream. Yeah. I'm sorry. And, and Bugle, like L Foundation. Um, and then everybody else, Nature Conservancy put me on for a while as a, I mean, as a freelancer, I was all traveling for them. Um, Worked for High Country News, which is a Western outdoor uh, environmental publication, really, uh, out of Paonia, Colorado. I've never been to the office there, and I've written for them since 1998. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. I've cobbled it together whatever I could. Yeah. And as of late, you've for the last two years, you have hosted the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers National Podcast. I have, yep. Yeah. Yep. And that came about just because of, um, like what I was telling you, like a conversation around a fire one time. And, yeah. and uh, this young lady there who was more technologically savvy than us old geezers, she just said, you know, somebody like, – like I was listening to this guy, Greg Munther, who's a trad bow guy and a very successful hunter. He was a uh, U.S. Forest Service – I can't remember what he did Forest Service for career, you know. Yeah. And um, he just has an enormous amount of experience out in natural resources and hunting and stuff. And she just said, man, I wish somebody was getting this down. Yeah. You know, and it, it it was important because people die and huge amounts of knowledge mm-hmm. fall away with them, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking about that when I decided to take this on. It wasn't something I was that interested in mm. at first, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, no, it's, it's that's been amazing. good to me. Yeah. Well, so you are from North Alabama. Tell me, tell me about your just a little bit about your background sure. because now you live you, well. You've lived the last twenty years in Montana. Yeah, almost thirty. So tell me about your early years and and then why you moved out to Montana. You bet. So I was um, so I I wrote some when I was I graduated from University of Alabama and I wrote some. Then I published some fiction and some essays and stuff like that. But uh, I had worked my when I was like 10 years old my parents who had grown up in south alabama they bought property outside of huntsville and we moved out in the country and re redid this 1836 log cabin mm. and that was kind of their dream you know and um we had big gardens and uh and we just kind of uh i hunted and fished which is all i'd ever wanted to do up to age 10 i just got to do it a thousand times more Mm-hmm. And um, we fish like like the people around here talk about catching these red red horse, you know these big right. suckers. Yeah, it was like I was obsessed with red horse 
when really? I, yeah, when I was a kid and snagging wet, them, snagging them, yeah, and then yeah. and fishing worms on the bottom, waiting for them to show up. Like March fourteenth, they always showed up. But in end of February, you had it down that pretty close to yeah. the day, yeah, because we had some really small creeks that they would show up in. Oh, I'll be darn. And um, I mean, it was just you know amazing to go down to this creek. It's like ten feet across, and here's these all of a sudden there's these big fish everywhere. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was just a lifestyle like that, and uh. One thing happened. I went to I went to Montana to a writer's workshop in 1988, but it was all kind of came together. I worked for paper companies as a tree planter when I was in college, and um, we did a lot of stuff. I worked commercial fishing too for a while in the Gulf, but mostly we were, we were tree planters and with a hoe dad, which is a hand tool, mm. and you can plant. And down there, you'd get thirty dollars, thirty three dollars a thousand. Wow, and so in and a and a decent day was three thousand, and a good day was five thousand. Hmm. So you're talking about being nineteen years old in the in the early nineteen eighties. Minimum wage is like four bucks, right? Yeah, and you're racking down hundred dollar days. Hmm. You know that's a pretty good incentive, and you live outside. Hmm. And so I was I came to Montana in nineteen eighty eight, and on the train from Chicago to Montana, there was this guy who was a tree planter. And he said, hey, man, if you're a real tree planter, you can make a fortune out here, which is not true, really. But <laughs> You rode a train. I want to stop you at train to Montana. Yeah, you rode from, a train to yeah, Montana. I got on a train in Memphis, and it goes Memphis to Chicago, Chicago to Seattle. How many days did it take to get out there? It's like three. Really? Why um, did you take a train? I wanted to see what everything looked like. Okay, so yeah. it wasn't like... Yeah, no, it was just like, it was like... You could, I was thinking in 1988, there were different ways to travel. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Right. <laughs> no, it was, but it was a good way to get out there. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, but, so I realized that you could actually go out west and make a living, you know? Yeah. Versus like going on a vacation or something, which we never had any money for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, and year after that, my wife and I, the woman who became my wife, we drove out there in our respective truck and car. And, uh, I got a job like off, a, off, I put my name up at a co-op, you know, and I got a job running, uh, working hay crew and I knew how to drive tractors and stuff like that. So I ended up staying on that ranch for two years. I didn't mm-hmm. tree plant. I just worked that ranch. It was like a, a hay farm and hay operation and, uh, but it was right on the edge of Bitterroot National Forest. Mm. And um, I killed a small bull elk the first year that I was legal resident and got a tag. And oh, uh, I just was hooked after that. Mm. It was um, it was like too much, too much to leave. Yeah. You know. And so you guys moved out there in 88? 89. We, we moved out there. And then I came back for a while in my late 20s to try to see what I was going to do, you know. Um, and then we just decided it, w- it was too good to leave behind. So you stayed out in Montana. Yeah. And yeah. raised my family there. And so you were, did you do timber work out in Montana? I ended up doing lots and lots of it. Uh, uh, I would go seasonally. We'd tree plant for a couple, this was a few years. We'd tree plant in the early spring over Idaho and eastern Washington. Yeah. And you'd come back when tree planting was over, say, at the end of May, and you'd, you did timber thinning. Yeah. And then we'd thin timber all through the summer and then uh, usually quit, maybe go back tree plant for three weeks in the fall. Yeah. And then you're done in the winter uh, and you didn't do, you know, we'd, we'd go skiing and ice climbing and wandering around and stuff, yeah. but there wasn't a lot of money like for extra money. Yeah. 
So we weren't like at the ski resort very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when did the riding come in, Hal? About, um, I was probably about 30. I went to graduate school in creative writing. And I came out of that and I went back to forestry work, but. So I you could, went to graduate school. So you got your master's. I did in, in creative writing. writing. Creative yep. writing. Yep. Okay. And I was, but I was thirty by then. But uh, and then you I, went back to planting trees. Yeah, I had to. I'd never had student loan debt before. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you got to come up with this money every month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm with you. Um. And uh, I applied for some teaching jobs and stuff, but I don't think anybody in their right mind would have hired me. You know. <laughs> Um, but it was, uh, one of the things happening, we had this big controversy in Montana at that time about game farming, you know, captive trophy shooting. Right, right. And one of the biggest operations was right down the road from where I was living. Mm. And I knew all these people at work there and I knew how it all worked. So I wrote a story about that and that eventually led me to Field and Stream mm. over, this was old school. Like, Early nineties? Let's yeah yeah and I think that story actually was not published until about ninety eight. Okay, um, but I started in on this game farming controversy, and lo and behold, uh, what shows up in, in there was chronic wasting disease, right? Mm. And so I got on the chronic wasting disease beat. Okay, and Field and Stream was great for that, um, and I I, I worked with the, I, I had steady work with Field and Stream through this chronic wasting disease coverage. Back in the late 90s. Yep. I'll be done. Yep, in early 2000s. Yeah. And uh, I got, that actually carried me to the Atlantic Monthly. At one point, it's the only story I ever wrote for the Atlantic Monthly. Yeah. And but I really thought I was kicking the world's butt, especially like we were talking about earlier. Like if you got a labor job or you're thinning timber for, you know, 500 bucks a week to get a writing paycheck for 650 you know, that's that's pretty competitive. You're cheating the system, man. Yeah, exactly. And you feel pretty good. <laughs> you know, that's the, the the way that I would describe, you know, me and you have some similarities yeah. in that I graduated college and I started working with my hands, started a landscape company yep. and was doing stone work and all kind right. of, I mean, just grubbing in the dirt, working. Right. And man, I felt like I was cheating the system when yep. I got paid to sit behind my yeah. computer and type an article. You I bet. was like, dude. Yeah. They're paying me for this. <laughs> exactly. That wasn't much. Yeah. It wasn't much money. Right. But you're not really making a lot anyway. Like, That's you know, right. it was, and so it was, people asked me about that. And I was like, I don't know if you realize like how, how little we, you know, I mean, how much we lit, how little we lived on like some of yeah. those years, you know? Well, I think, I think back in the day when print publications were the media source, yep. I think People made more money, didn't they? Oh, they did. And I, I mean, any more writers aren't making a lot of money. That's right. I came in at the end of that. Okay. For sure. Like, yeah. Like, uh, I think Jim Carmichael was still writing at Field and Stream, like the rifles guy. Yeah. And I remember going, I was still around when he retired, they kind of retired him. Yeah. And for after that, it was more of us freelancers. Yeah. And it wasn't anymore, it wasn't a, a big career that you went to the Atlantic Monthly or the Field and Stream. Yeah. It was this gig economy deal, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, so it was different. And it was different, and, and whether that's good or bad, I don't know. I mean, I never wanted to be, like, fully employed somewhere where I had to go to New York City and sit in the office. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Would you, was your, are you a, are you a passionate writer i mean like do you 
enjoy that medium of communication, or was it just a kind of a means to an end that you were just really good at? Okay, I love to read. Okay. And I was probably the most voracious reader of my age. I was terrible at math and stuff like that, but I love to read. And so uh, I love the a- after you've written, if you're kind of proud of, of what you've done, if, if it makes sense and it's a good piece. Yeah. I like to have, but, but the actual doing of it, I don't think I'm all that passionate about it. It's, it's sitting in your butt in a chair. Yeah. Bashing your brains against some problem. And um, I'd much rather be working in the woods at that yeah. moment. Right, right, right. <laughs> You know, but then somebody sends you to Alaska to go fishing and, and investigate the pebble mine, you know. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden you're on a bush plane in Alaska, and you that's a heck of a lot better than tree planting. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then you come home, and some of these stories – uh, the 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 stories are so wild. Like some of that that trophy captive trophy shooting people. You you talk to these people who they pay money and they'll shoot this big elk from like twenty feet away and they take they mount it on the thing and they're like it's like what do you think about that? You know like like what in what's going on? Like what how yeah. do you what do you think about that? That's so different than me. Yeah yeah yeah. And so that kind of, it's kind of fun. You know you. You're just in all different kinds of experiences. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we've 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 officially exited the heyday of of print, which the heyday of print lasted for long time. When was the Gutenberg press in, in, invented? In the right, sixteen hundreds or something? Yeah. I don't even know. I mean, for hundreds of years, yep. The print word was El Primo. Yep. And and I I believe that it's never going to fully be replaced. But obviously, the internet, video, yep. po- I mean, all these other forms of communication yeah. are really powerful. But how has uh, is is the is the writer like being a writer? You know, being a writer has this sense of a person that understands what's going on. And is a powerful communicator and has influence. Yep. I mean, that's the way I would describe it. Is that still alive? Not as much. Not as much because, like, you get people who are bloggers, and actually some of them are great, you know? Um, no, the, somebody, a buddy of mine who's a novelist, he said, the cachet of being a writer is gone. Uh, you know, everybody's kind of a writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that's true. Um, and I, and I do think back in the day, like, uh, I, I read Bill Heavey at Field and Stream a lot, you know, and he's really funny mm. and that's still extremely hard to do. Yeah. You know, that ain't on YouTube. That ain't on the, uh, on Facebook very often, but how often do people like uproariously funny? Right. You got to work at that. Yeah. Gotta, that's a job. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And so I think somebody, sometimes like Heavey and stuff like that, that's still going. Eddie Nickens at Field and Stream is able to write these incredible stories like about dog hunting. and Yeah. Um, and I think, I think if you're willing to work at it that hard, yeah. that you can still kind of, you're never going to be as big as you were in the 50s when there were only a handful of them. Right. There's a million of them now. Yeah. In yeah. a way, it's a meritocracy, though. Yeah. Like, who's great? Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. guitar players. Like how many times have you ever sat down with somebody who could play guitar as well as anybody you've ever heard on the radio, but they just didn't make it because either maybe they drank too much or they were too busy raising little kids or whatever, but they're this virtuoso on a guitar. I've seen it. Yes. 
Yeah. It's like that. There's a lot of guitar players and not that many room at much room at the at the yeah. top. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I still do think that I'm glad to hear you say that cuz that's what I I I think there's still a space for the written word that is super powerful. There is for and, excellence. And, there is a space. Yes. And 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 I think that the pendulum is going to swing back, and I, I think it, it may even be now at some level. Yep. I mean, people are going to. I mean, internet and technology and video and easy access to stuff that doesn't Everything. take any brain capacity yeah. to digest. Like to read something, you, you're using brain power. Yep. Calories. Yep. Brain calories. Yep. To to Without read doubt. this, and it makes you a sharper person. You're being engaged. Yes. It's like you're bringing it. You're not just reading is not just passive. That's right. I told my, my, my oldest daughter is is at college right now. And the older I get, the more I am grateful for things that I started doing 20 years ago. Yep. That I'm now reaping the benefit of when I'm 40. Yeah. And what and one of the things that I told her, it was just kind of a candid conversation we had. And I said, I am so glad that I have continued to read through my adult life. Yep. And 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 I, I think it has it has it has helped me develop as a person. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I'm saying all this to get back to this idea of being a writer. How? Sure. Because because I mean you you're that's what you're known as, that's what you are is you're you're a writer. Yep. And I think that that's a a, a noble thing and I think that uh I think you're right. I think the guys that can do it well will continue to use that medium as a, in a powerful way. And I know you're writing a book too. I am on, on America's public lands, but, and which is a subject that's like, I'm completely passionate about this ain't a, a heavy lift, you know? Yeah. Um, but one of the things I, and I'm not like a big conspiracy guy or a, a TOT walkie into the world as we know it type stuff, you know, but, uh, I went back the other day and I was reading Thomas Paine, common sense, the, the, mm. the pamphlet that, that set off the American revolution, you know? Yeah. And I do think that, and again, I'm going to sound like a black ho- a black helicopter dude, but I'm not. <laughs> but like, there is going to come a time in every nation's history, in every place in the world, where the power of what Tom Paine did, and it's not going to be on the internet because that's all going to be monitored. I mean, you're monitored like like a buddy of mine, and his phone congratulated him for like 20 trips this year, and it had everywhere he had been. Mm-hmm. From Mexico and Chile to uh, mm-hmm. all over the West, you know, and so the what Thomas Paine did, you could do in the future if you needed to have a revel a rebellion, yeah. and great writers would be saying this is the argument for this. The time is now, yeah, and yeah. it would be the same as when they were in. Uh, Albert Camus was walking around Paris under the Nazi occupation and they carried pieces of a printing press in their overcoats and then they would all meet like a flash mob Mm. but this ain't on the internet because they would have been caught I see what you're saying. And they assembled the printing press. They ran off the the pamphlets for the partisans against the Nazis then they took the printing press apart and they all disappeared. Wow. And the ones that got caught were killed. You know. Wow. Wow. And so the printed we word sharpen up our skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the printed word is going to be with us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really I really believe that. Um and you know I I talk to people uh I mean I, I kind of keep my pulse on the or, or I'm trying to on the on the book world. Yeah. And books are doing good these days. Some you books do the, incredible. Well, I mean, just walk into Barnes and Noble. Yep. 
And I mean, the place is full of books, and that yep. place is hopping with people. That's right. It's it's not like going to the arcade that nobody goes to anymore because right. you can play video games at your house. Gotcha. Which I've yep. never played video games in my no, life. I ne- well, I played them when you put the quarters in. Them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, but no. Yeah, I, that's right. So and, I, I, that to me, just I, I was just I wanted to have that conversation with sure. you about about writing because I I do think it's important, especially you know in modern times. When hunters are being marginalized as this, I mean, we're four point five percent of the population of people uh-huh. in 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 the USA that that hunt. That's scary. We got it. We got to be sharp people. Yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah, and and I think this passion that we have for for hunting, for public lands, for the the type of lifestyle that we lead, yeah, has to fuel us to be our best selves. Yeah, can I say it yeah. that way? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, in in to me, that comes in a lot of different forms. Yeah, uh, for me to be my best self, but but part of that is is reading. Yeah, is writing. Is staying sharp. Yep. And uh, and I, I I encourage people to read. You know, yeah. read oh, the yeah. written word. Yeah, for sure. And, and then and also balance it with like like uh, I think Edward Abbey said, be a half hearted fanatic. You know, and yeah. he said primarily be outside looking and enjoying. Yeah, and seeing how much there is there to to love, you know. Yeah, and then and then you can celebrate that in your own writing and in reading. Like like I love like like essayists like Tom McGuane. We talk about a lot. He's a great fishing writer. He lives in Montana. Yeah, he's always very. He's pretty old now, and he's like he's still working at the height of his powers, and he's still like. I read that, and I was like, that's what I want. I love in fishing, you know. Yeah, and yeah. he got it. Yeah. To do that, he has to come inside and say. He told me one time. I've, I've been lucky to interview him, and he told me that he no longer struggled with a piece that he had to write. He said, "If I'm struggling with it, I'm too old." He said, "I, I have to go outside and just go fishing because I don't have that much time left." Mm-hmm. He said, "I don't have time." He said, "When I was your age and younger, I would sit down until I got it, you know, no matter what." Yeah. He said, "But now," he said, "I, I write the things that interest me the most, and the rest of the time I spend outside hunting and fishing." Mm, mm. training dogs yeah 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 but you got to earn that that place yeah yeah exactly well so how you are your work with backcountry hunters and anglers and and you being the voice inside their podcast has has made you a, a, a spokesman for public lands we were we were talking earlier you're from north alabama yep i'm from north i'm from western arkansas yeah. and I think that sometimes I said this. I said that uh, I think sometimes people from the South sometimes have a have a hard time identifying with the mission of BHA. Not getting behind it. I mean, they've yep. got we got a strong Arkansas BHA chapters and Southeast chapters and stuff. Yeah, but we don't have the public lands issues that you guys have out west. Right. We there and we do have some, but they're just not the same. Yeah. And so we hear all this stuff about. Public lands, public lands, public lands, keeping public hands. And yeah. man, I can get behind that. I mean, it 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 sounds good. Yeah. But we don't privatization of public lands in Arkansas is just not happening. Not yet. So right. what I think is that if uh just envision that we knew what I want you to do is I want you to talk to us as if we knew nothing. Okay. About, because I think th- th- the narr- I mean, 
everybody and their brothers talking about public lands these days. Yeah. I mean, it's just a trendy thing to talk about. Yeah. And I think sometimes we've skipped over the actual knowledge of what's happening, okay. and we've just jumped on the bandwagon because it's cool. Right. Can gotcha. I say it that yeah, way? Yeah, for sure. And so I want to take a step back because, yeah, heck yeah, all of us can get behind wanting to keep access to public lands. Yeah. I mean, that's an easy thing for a hunter to get behind. It's an easy thing for a hunter to begin to understand the history at a narrow level of public lands that, you know, it was Theodore Roosevelt and a bunch of those guys in the early 1900s that loved hunting and yep. wanted to see wildlands protected that started the Forest Service. Like, right. But talk to me about what's happening out west okay. and why this movement is so critical right now. Well, what and what I'd go to, too, is... Uh, is try to dispel some ideas of disinformation that people might have is one is is like you could say i think it's 70 something percent of nevada is federal land you know mm. and people go well that's ridiculous you know the federal government shouldn't even own that and all and and you and then you look at nevada and it's the mojave desert and it's the garbage range which without that when they overgrazed that and they didn't have enough water down below there's no rain you know, so these were lands in the West completely. We gave away under all the Homestead Acts. Our federal government gave away everything plus that people could have ever wanted. They so gave, the Homestead Act would have been back in the 1800s we, we, when they said, if you can go out there and you can take what you want. Absolutely. And uh, the problem with it was, is you, you got a hundred, you got 160 acres in a place that got two inches of rain, you know, so it really didn't work. But some of it did. Yeah. Oregon certainly did. California. Yeah. But um, 1867, there was one coming out of the Civil War. You could go west and claim on the homestead. The last one that we had several homestead acts the last big one was 1909 hmm. and a lot of that was like eastern montana it was like the stuff that nobody else had claimed right because you couldn't really make a living on it hmm. and so there was enormous uh abandonment so people came west on trains they had the rain follows the plow right the trains wanted more customers. So okay, they, the they, train followed they, the plow. Yeah, they, they said that the rain would follow the plow. Once oh. we plowed up all the plains, it would start raining again and more than it ever had before. That was a completely invented. Oh, okay, okay. It I'm was just it. a completely it. invented thing to give away more land so the railroad would have more passengers, and then they would have more grain as long as it's lasted. So 1909 Homestead act was really pretty lean you know it's that hardcore parts of nebraska um that's like the last stuff that was left uh nevada um utah all this stuff but but i'm i know eastern montana the best mm -hmm. so 1909 they gave away a lot of homestead land people settled on it it was some rainy years for a little while and then by 1925 like the population of Phillips County had gone up at Montana, Eastern Montana, had gone up to 20,000 people. And then it quit raining. Mm. And people did whatever they could, including eat the dog and, and burn the house, you know, to, mm. to, to survive. And by 1925, there was about 1,100 people left there. Wow. And there were 5,000 head of abandoned animals on the range there, plow horses and stuff like sure. that. And so it took, so, so what we did was, same thing happened in the east, like the Nantahalia National Forest, the Pisgah National Forest, the Washita, yeah. um, uh, Apalachicola National Forest in Florida. They had logged these places flat. 
they were free. It was frontier style, right? Yeah. And a, a timber company would file a claim, but they would they didn't pay. They would log it flat, and then they'd abandon it. And it was eroding so fast, like up in in Nantahalia, uh, and I can't remember the name of the forest around Asheville, North Carolina, but it it filled up the French Broad River with sediment, mm. and then the French Broad River began to flood massively. Right, because mm. there's no timber to stop the runoff, right, and right, then right. and the and the and the river was full of mud. Mm. So people were taking it; they were losing everywhere. Towns being flooded, uh, and so they passed in 1911. They passed the Weeks Act in Congress, and that allowed the federal government to buy back or take over these abandoned lands in the south and the east. Apalachicola National Forest was one. They had cut all the longleaf pine out of there and then turpentined it, you know, for, for the stumps, mm-hmm. and then abandoned it. Mm. And um, and it was it was just wreckage. And so the under the Weeks Act, the federal government could use taxpayer money to start restoring these landscapes, mm. which they didn't know. What year was, was the Weeks Act? 1911. Man, that was that was. I mean, all that happened. That that's a part of our story in Arkansas about bears being extirpated, yes. landscape level logging. Yeah. I mean, that happened all over, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, and and um, beyond just the landscape level logging was the disasters of the floods and mm. the rivers filling up with mud wow. and losing so much topsoil. Yeah, and so we put the Weeks Act through the Congress, and they begin to acquire like the Bankhead, what became Bankhead National Forest in Alabama, but. In in Montana, they had so many places that were abandoned and completely destroyed. Like you, you'd graze the last piece of grass off of it before you gave up, you know. Yeah. And yeah. this wasn't anybody's fault. I mean, this is just people trying to make a living in a place where it doesn't rain, right? And so we they passed what's called the Bankhead Jones Act, and that was before the 1930s, before the Dust Bowl. I mean, Dust Bowl was coming. Everybody knew that we had overgrazed and o- over timbered and. We knew it. Yeah. Roosevelt and all of them knew it. But they passed the Bankhead Jones Act, which allowed the federal government to then buy or take over these homesteaded lands that were completely destroyed and restore them. Mm-hmm. And then they would lease that restored ground for grazing and they use the money from the grazing to support the public education in in uh, say land grant university montana state university yeah so they were they were fixing all these problems you know you got uneducated folks who didn't know that it if it doesn't rain you can't raise five thousand sheep you know but you you got a university now their kids can go to it and learn about grazing mm. and and the and the the experiment that failed of of homesteading these dry places well we fixed it we fixed it with taxpayer money so we have what do this, you mean how did you fix it well, Congress passed the Bankhead Jones Act, okay, and they then employed soil scientists and range ecologists okay. To, okay. to replant, you know, what would what would grow there, and yeah. slowly restore that range to a usable condition. So, mm. one of the things in, in this public lands research I keep coming up with is how damn successful the United States of America and its people have been in both wrecking stuff and fixing it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it. I mean, I mean, we got to be the best in the world mm. at both, you know. And yeah. and you go over to somewhere like like I've never been to Syria, but you know the and even in England where their topsoil is like there's four feet of topsoil gone in the last two thousand years. You know, wow. 
and we just we just have gone a different direction. Yeah. And and uh, part of this is the system of public lands. In uh, in California, they looked at L.A. and they said it doesn't ever rain. There is no water, but there's a city already of almost a million people. And they said, what are we going to do? They said, we're going to have to make sure that nobody overgrazes or overtimbers that San Gabriel national, like, like uh, mountain range. Right. And Los Angeles. That's the watershed for, for their LA. water source. Yeah. yeah. And without it, it doesn't, there's no rain. If you, I mean, if you don't catch the snow and the rain coming off into that high mountains, there's no water down there. Yeah. And so you don't go killing the only goose that you got that's laying <laughs> the only golden egg that you can't live without. Hmm. Um, the same thing as where I live was the headwaters of the Sun River drainage. It's all irrigated agriculture, nine inches of rain a year. There's wow. in, and uh, all irrigated, and, and they said, boy, they were cutting all the railroad ties up there, and then they were putting the sheep in there by the thousands and thousands. And once those rivers started degrading, people downstream started going, holy smokes, you know, it doesn't rain here. <laughs> yeah, we and better, there's no more water coming from up there, there, and it's not coming anymore. It's 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 too yeah. too eroding in and filling in. So we it's all been very practical. Now, if I'm jumping ahead, stop me and tell me where I should go. But so all these homesteaders came out here and tried to homestand this land. Yep, learned that much of it they could not homestead. Right. So that land went back into the hands of the federal government. Yeah, because it, was it had to be owned and managed by somebody. Yeah, well, the free range was a disaster. Yeah, you know, it was just you just take the last piece of grass. It was tragedy of commons type stuff. You yeah, know, on that one. Um, and we've learned since then we're not as bad as we were. Yeah, you know, but yeah, it reverted back under that Bankhead Jones Act, just in the same way, say the Bankhead National Forest or the Washita was taken into federal hands under the Weeks Act. So that's why we got these things. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and you know, I think it's amazing in in uh, in Arkansas, and it's probably this way everywhere. But it's real clear where the public land starts and stops. Yeah, because of basically it's land that is very difficult to use. That's right. I mean, like you you'll be driving through this like pretty flat, good looking farmland right. and then all of a sudden the terrain just drops into these big canyons and hilly stuff and yep. it's like, all right, we're in the national forest kids. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody wanted to live there. Right. That's right. Everybody wanted to live in the flat country. And really that is why I mean to somebody that doesn't know much at all about public lands, yeah. Public lands are basically the places that Nobody claimed. Nobody claimed. And in in Arkansas, and it's probably this way out west too, there's remnants of when it was in private ownership. Yeah. Like lots of the places in the Ozarks and Washtals, there's old, you know, you can see foundations of old houses and old rock walls and different places where people tried to make a living for a period of time on some real rough ground that they probably got for real cheap. Yep. Or they were free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Or free. And then essentially they went bankrupt and it went back into the or, or they sold it or however it got yep. back to the federal government so anyway i mean that's a that's a story maybe not everybody knows i don't think people know it and i and uh like for the there is an anti-public lands movement um and yeah. and people hate the federal government so much that it's like they would give away their national forest in some kind of protest i mean i don't know what people are talking about with that now in the east or the south yeah. But in the West, you know, we have all this anger over federal land management. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, to, to be truthful with you, that's always going to be there. Yeah. Because it's this incredible 
piece of ground where you can take a pack string and go elk hunting for two weeks if you want or go hiking all day every day and and when you got something that's that valuable now it's attained these values as as the population of the united states has gone to 330 million or whatever yeah um you know it, we're always going to argue over that it's, it reminds me of, of uh, my family and this property this farm that that i inherited when my daddy died we inherited together we don't agree over the management of that property we, we <laughs> you argue, and your siblings yeah no we don't we yeah. argue over it you know but we all love the property and want to keep it yeah yeah it's it reminds me in a microcosm of what this is yeah yeah you can't expect there not to be conflict over logging you know out west yeah, yeah. i mean there's places we need more logging there's places we wish we had less logging yeah we're yeah. always gonna have to argue over it yeah now what you told me and you said it earlier today but you said it there is that there, there is some just anti-government sentiment that seems to fuel some of this. That was kind of news to me. Yeah, I mean that 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 it's kind of a a mind frame yep. in in some people just this anti-government thing. Yeah, they which, just and, they just hate the government, and, yeah. and I, I'm okay with that, you know. But that doesn't mean you want to not have any place to go hunting ever. Right. I mean, I, I think probably most of the people that would listen to this podcast would would prefer less government over more government but there's a lot of good things our government does for there us aren't. and one of them is maintain our public lands yeah i mean we <laughs> yeah exactly and and it's and there's not there's really no other country in the world canada has the crown lands yeah and the people don't have much say over how they're disposed but uh they they can use them yeah but we we have the ability americans raise hell like they squabble and they always have you know we don't have like a monarchy Mm-hmm. Where everybody goes, well, God save the queen or whatever. We, mm-hmm. you know, we laugh at stuff like that. <laughs> and so, people who think that um, there's there's 640 million acres of American public lands, and that's Bureau of Land Management, which was which was a lot of that grazing land in the interior west that was too dry for anybody to settle. Yeah, and that's leased for grazing now at the lowest grazing rate in the world, which is dollar sixty six for a cow calf pair for a month. Um, that's really low hmm. and it loses money, but it also keeps small ranchers on the land. Hmm. And I, I personally, because I live in a ranching town, I guess I'm biased. You know, my son does that kind of work and stuff. I think there ought to be small ranching in the West. Mm-hmm. I like, I like cowboy culture and people raising their family out in the middle of nowhere and doing rodeo and yeah. being free and shooting guns and going hunting. Yeah. I think that's a great part of America. Yeah. And yeah. this this is part of that. Like like people who are the anti public lands movement, uh, they don't have any idea that if those lands were transferred to state control, they'd be sold because the state can't manage them. They they so, don't have the budget. So that is a big point that somebody could just take a little nugget away to understand. The anti public lands movement is not necessarily the federal government selling this land to some big private corporation, not necessarily. That's not necessarily. That's that where, would happen too, right? Yeah. It, there's there's a lot of talk of giving it back over to the states. Yeah, and and here's one thing you ought to know on that is the states never had it, like like under the Enabling Act of whatever it was that under statehood in Utah, they relinquished specifically relinquished control to all federal lands within the state. They never had it. There was never a place in Utah that was that was uh, owned by Utah, and the federal government came in and took it. 
I mean, there is eminent domain in national parks, like in the east. Yeah. But that's not part of this discussion. I see what you're saying. These were unclaimed lands. The state relinquished uh, any claim to them in Nevada, Utah, Montana, yeah. uh, Idaho, uh, and then they became states. And yeah. these federal lands remained within them. Okay, that the way you said it right there makes sense to me. Yeah. These were unclaimed lands, and essentially it would be like a state formed around yep, this unclaimed, unclaimed land right. that was owned by yep. the federal government. And so now some of these people are coming in and saying, hey, there's federal land inside the boundaries of my state, yep. and, you, and the government doesn't have a right to but, own land right. in my state. But they do under the Constitution so and a, under the Enabling Act. Okay. And, and that, the thing is, is this, if this were some kind of evil thing, I would be for like fixing it. Like, how do you fix it? But instead, it's like the kind of the best thing ever about our country to me. Yeah, is that we have all of these lands that we all can use and share and wander around and look at. Yeah, like canyon lands in Utah with all those crazy pictographs and yeah, and and you can go hunting in Montana or hunting in in Colorado. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so I don't the, know what people are so angry so the about. Federal go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's an issue of finances as well, too, because yeah. these big, vast, you know, 640,000 acres of public land. Yep. Million. Excuse yeah. me. Million. Yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah. Million. It, it, it costs money, especially out west. Right. Fire suppression. Yep. Uh, just management of of roads and, yep. and the, the management of control, I, all the money that goes into – so – is is there financial issues like the federal government saying we don't have the money to properly manage these, so we want to turn it over to the states? Is no, that- no, that's never come up because the states okay. would have to sell them because the states definitely don't have the fire management money, you know, that the feds have when when all three hundred million of us, however many of us pay taxes, yeah, we're <laughs> paying in. You know, yeah. you've got a bigger chest to manage whatever. Okay. Um, the other thing was is it, it keeps coming up. Is it goes, he goes, uh, all this land is doesn't pay in taxes. Like if if some millionaire owned the uh, Washita National Forest, they would be paying land taxes. Uh, I see. And so your state would have more money there. So is that that's one of the arguments? Is that, that it, this is untaxed land? Yes, but it but a county like San Juan County in Utah, which is something like eighty percent, ninety percent public land, they get what's called, and you'd have to Google this because this. It's very complicated. It's another American thing that we figured called payment in lieu of taxes or PILT. Hmm. And so federal lands do bring money into states and counties. Okay. In addition to logging and employment and different stuff like that, but they bring in payment in lieu of taxes. Okay. And, you know, if you owned that desert in Nevada, I'm not sure you'd pay more taxes on it. How would you? What would you do yeah. to, to generate money from this desert? To, so that you could pay higher land taxes. I don't think it works. These are deserts. Yeah. They're alpine rock and ice wilderness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not going to be making you money. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and where we have mining resources, we've mined. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, there's abandoned mines where we have energy resources. We've leased and we've we've harvested the energy. The idea that all this stuff is somehow locked up is another thing I hear in the South and stuff. They go, they got it all locked up. You can't use it. I was like, I, I mean, I go shooting almost every week on a piece of BLM. I drive out there. Hmm. And and if you go to Wyoming, 
you're in the energy fields for miles, hundred miles hmm. of of coal bed met. There's four thousand coal bed methane wells abandoned on public land in the Powder River, Wyoming, hmm. which ain't a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I I'll tell you one thing: they didn't want to own that land. Yeah, they wanted to get the coal bed methane and then get out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't that nobody in their right mind would want to own an oil field when the oil's gone. Yeah, you know. So we how, turn, we balance things out. Yeah, yeah. So tell me how, uh, like backcountry hunters and anglers is 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 helping the public land situation yeah so uh, one of the things they've done is they've raised awareness amongst hunters and fishermen yeah about not just this movement to privatize or give away or sell off our public lands which is real but just about public lands management like and 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 um access to mm-hmm. public lands uh, like where they're landlocked by private yeah um crazy mountains in montana yeah um they they have just they've raised awareness of uh, activist people who are hunters and fishermen who heretofore who are just, now paying attention. They're paying attention. Yeah, you because know, we took this for granted for right un, until this big like the Bundys that you know had the standoff with the BLM over the cattle out in Nevada and and in Oregon. Um, we didn't really realize that there was like a an American Lands Council, which is a well-funded organization, which is devoted to getting rid of federal public lands. Mm. And and they really are. They're not kidding. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and here's people I know who go elk hunting. There's the only thing they live for. They got, they got, you got mules. Yeah. You know, these people yep. are, are, they're keeping a string of feeding horses, string a few horses and mules. They go elk hunting every year, and they never dreamed that anybody would get rid of yeah. part of the Lewis and Clark National Forest or, or that they would yeah. even dream of. Well, they're dreaming of it. Yeah. Wow. So th- 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 that's a good description of backcountry hunters and anglers. Yeah. They're, they're, they're an activist organization that's got people looking at the issues. You bet. I've got an example. And 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 I said this to you earlier. We don't have the public lands issues in the east like you do in the west. Right. And so sometimes I think you will. Well, Within we our probably lifetime. will. Yeah, for sure. Um, talk about it being an activist organization. There was a it, just recently, uh, two months ago, there was a, a public input uh, session uh, period of time for the state of Florida when they were revising their bear management plans. Okay, there's been a massive pushback. By the by, the animal rights groups and different people in Florida saying we don't want a bear hunt. Gotcha. Well, rurals, uh, Florida is is a pretty rural, wild place, yeah, really, except for these big urban centers, which outvote everybody else. Yeah, so right? it's the typical story. <laughs> yeah. Well, backcountry hunters, anglers, southeast sent out, and I, I don't remember how they did it. They sent out an email. They sent out some Facebook stuff, and and they said, hey, we want hunters and anglers. To, to voice in to this public input session in Florida. Yeah. yeah. And they, they you went into the website and you got a direct link that sent this email to this place. Well, I did it. I posted some stuff about it and uh, a bunch of people did it. And anyway, the report that I got back after that from the guy that talked to the biologist, he said that, that and I don't want to quote the actual numbers because it was, I'll, pro- I'll probably get it wrong. But I want to say there were hundreds yeah. of backcountry hunters and anglers guys that made comments yep. 
that far outnumbered the 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 negative comments and it was solely just because we were we were grouped together yep we were unified it was easy yep and we were activated and and it, and it was easy to do it all you had to do was you know and, and go it, to this website do you know anyway. and here's the thing too especially when you're in the service something like those biologists know that there's enough black bear to hunt yeah so it's true yeah i mean it's true the state has management and there's enough bears to hunt and it's way out in the middle of the country where you can hunt them yeah it's like that the people's emotion inside orlando shouldn't be making the rule out there but you, but they will unless right. you get together and push back Right. And and the thing to me, and I told you this, I've taken a little bit of flack for being in back there's there's a little bit of skepticism sure. in the South. And uh and, and it's it's I don't quite understand it. But man, it was a backcountry hunter southeast that was stepping up and standing yeah. up for bear hunting in Florida. Yeah. And uh and, and it's not over yet. I mean there's a lot left to do, but just in that one instance I do have that example. Yeah. But the point of me saying that is that if you can unite people yeah. and get them pointing in the same direction and paying attention, you're you're winning. You are, and, one and of the, that's what BHA's done. One, of the, yeah, and one of the ways that one of the things that's happened here is it's like I don't know what the the ages are like twenty to forty. I it's mean, a pretty I mean, young it's demographic, really young, and and those people were not around when it was just like other other older conservation groups. Yeah, I mean, people were getting so old around Montana. You'd go to these meetings where Valley County Sports Sportsmen's Association, this old sporting, you know, they that's what they did. They go to the legislature, and they go like, "No, you're not going to close off access to you know the river," you know, and yeah. they, these guys, but they were getting so old, yeah. and nobody was coming in behind them until BHA started and appealed to a younger bunch of folks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that might be the longest the the biggest power that they've have really. Yeah. Like the most positive thing they've done. Yeah. Is for young people to have a go place like my son's 19, his friends are all into it and they're and they're like 19. Yeah. And they hunt like like harder than I ever did. They got, you know, they've got it's a time in their life when they're free to do it. Yeah. They're hiking into the Gravely Mountains. They're packing out elk from eight miles away, you know? Wow. And I and I think it's just cool. It's totally they're floating the rivers. Yeah. Fishing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what would you say the biggest so so if What's the biggest threat to public lands in the West? The biggest threat to public lands in the West is enough people in America don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And and have no idea of the level of freedom that this represents. And sometimes when you don't know what you got, people take it from you before you get a full grasp of it. Yeah. That's the danger. Yeah. You know, and then there's a lot of disinformation out there from people who don't who don't want this to continue saying that the feds have locked up this and done that. And, and the place is so huge and there's so many different problems like in management, you know, that you can easily focus on the negative. Right. And forget that I'm going elk hunting next year, you know, on public land for as long as I can afford to be out. Yeah. Um, I just, I, we've got a problem in the United States where, we started focusing on the negative, and I think it's because we don't know. I've been deep immersed in this history, 
And when I did my gun book, that's what it was. It was just a history of America, like, you know, written in gun smoke, really. Yeah. And I just love that. And I find people just don't know that history, so they don't know how we got here. Yeah. And so really kind of the path forward is pretty cloudy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if you don't know what the Weeks Act is and how you got the Nantahalia National Forest where you go run your dog every week, you might not be able to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the threat. The threat is is not not people not knowing. Yeah. What we got. And just taking for granted that we'll always have what we do have now. Exactly. And why would we? Nobody else in the world's got anything like it. Yeah. You know what you said about the trend inside of it, it, maybe it's other places, I don't know, but I do know it's here. So the trend in American culture is to find the point that we disagree on. Yep. And and make a big stink about that. Yep. I mean, what you said about your family land in yep. Alabama, I think, is a great example. Yep. That you and your siblings, who you love and get we along with, get I'm along sure. With. Yep. And there is disagreements even on that of how yep. it's going to be managed. Yep. We just have to understand that, man, on a big block of public land out west, there's going to be a lot of people with interest in that land. Yep. Some of us have interest in it for the wilderness, solitude, and hunting. Yep. Some of us might have interest in it for ATV riding. Yep. Some of us may have interest in it for grazing cattle. Yep. Some of us may have interest in it for making a living for our family, logging timber off government contracts. Yep. Like Everybody has this angle, and I mean, we've, we've got to be able to We've got to be able to see the broad picture, which is this is public land. It's ours. We need to keep it in public, yep. the public domain. And fix and, what's wrong with it, and, you know? Yeah. And, and like like uh, Congress has choked the budgets for the Forest Service. We, it's actually better. It's, it's a little better now because the Forest Service is not choked down by having to pay all their fire costs, you know? That mm. they separated that out recently, mm. and um, and which is really positive. And but you know, I have a vision for all this. It's the reason I embarked on this book project. I could see how this could be made to work in a in a much more like like more a way where people could be more excited. And one of the things that I'd like to see was I'd like I I made a living contracting federal land jobs climbing pine trees and for nurseries and and building trails and bridges and all that stuff. I had a great time with that. But I think if the Forest Service would have like an AmeriCorps of tree planters and thinners and and then have like more employment Mm -hmm. on public lands, like Mm. doing good work. Yeah, habitat restoration, watershed stuff. Um, I see. And I think there's a future where we have more engagement with public lands and employment. Yeah, because we've cut that too far. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and it's 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 separating people out. Like from in uh, didn't you say you were hunting up or on off of Highway 90 there, Alberton, St. Yeah. Regis, all that country. Yeah. So Mineral County, Montana, I think is 93 percent public land. It was all logged off completely and replanted and logged to some extent. There's not much logging left in there. There's not that much valuable timber left. It will be someday, mm-hmm. but there's very few jobs. Yeah. And and what jobs are done there are done by visa laborers from, like, Central America. And that makes people mad, mm-hmm. you know. If you live, you grew up in Superior and the high school's closing because you ain't got enough kids in it. And and your daddy had a job at a mill, and that you don't have that anymore. You know that makes people mad. Yeah, 
And um, I just think that you could go in there and you'd have more employment thinning timber and restoring watersheds and replanting trees and cutting trees where necessary, you know, where, yeah. where, where sustainable. Yeah. And get you a sawmill that operates that own smaller timber. And let's, let's get some, you know, get some uh, energy. You know, oh, and I see what you're saying. Other places are fine to just sit there and be the hunting country or be the protection of the watershed. You know, yeah. But but um, I don't think that I think we I can I think we can do better as yeah. long as we keep the baby and the bath water both. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like some uh, like uh, uh, Roosevelt New Deal kind of stuff. Like uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like build some programs for people to. Engage yeah, to engage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think people, I mean, I don't think anybody, you and me are pretty active outdoorsmen, you know, but there's a lot of room for people to get up and move around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if From what I see at the Walmart down here. Yeah. They could use a little public land, like swinging a, a hoe right. dad or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hoe dad. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Yep. I, I do. I mean, high school kids could, could be happier, I think, and healthier. If they had a little dose of the Washington National Forest, let them know what's there. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know? That's right. It's our America, man. Yeah. Yep. Well, how, th- thanks a ton, man. Th- th- what we've, what you've said has helped me understand it at a, at a greater degree. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think it, uh, I think it, 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 it makes, it makes even more sense to me now. Is there anything that I haven't, asked you or anything you'd like to say i think i think we're good i mean i don't want to beat it over the beat the horse down but um just i just want i think i want people to engage i want people to see i mean it's hard to take a trip we're busy you know but i think i think that i just was down in southern utah recently as part of this book research and stuff and i i just was so blown away by what we got Mm. I mean, and I, I went down to Gold Butte National Monument in the Mojave Desert on that same trip and looked at those pictographs and think about those thousands of years of people doing that, traveling through those deserts. What were they doing? You know, you'll never know. Yeah. And the mystery of it all and, and the like the Olympia National Forest, the Olympic, uh, the Olympic Peninsula in, in Washington and the Pisgah and Nantahegia, the Washita. Apalachicola National Forest is like, I just, sometimes I'm just so blown away by what we've been born into as this birthright. Yeah. And I think that's what part of why I'm doing this book. And I did this movie that's coming out. It's called Public Trust. It'll be out next year. Um, it won a film festival that it came out at. It's about public lands and the threats to them. Mm. Not everybody will like it. Uh, but but uh, I'm just blown away by what we got. Yeah. And I think if other people would be blown away too if they just started looking. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I appreciate your having let me talk on here cuz this has been interesting. Yeah. You know. Well, I I appreciate what you're doing. I do. And uh where can people find you how? Like they can find the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast. Yep, they can just search that yep. anywhere you have a podcast, yep. I it's guess. It's called Podcast and Blast and there's seventy episodes published so far. Um What's your favorite one? What could they listen to? What would you tell them? Which episode? Well, my be- my favorite ones are less less popular than bo- most of them. My, my <laughs> favorite one was with this Stephen Pine who's written thirty five book P Y N E on fire. 
Uh, okay. And he's he's just filled with this philosophy about wildfire and, and us being, for instance, he said uh, he said photosynthesis binds things together, binds things in the world together. They create, they build, and fire takes them apart. Mm. And you can't have one without the other. The fire, the, they don't exist. They grow forever, and they, and they it doesn't work without fire. I see. So the whole world is like based on fire. And before people evolved and found fire. Um, he said, before we learned to cook, your brain couldn't really be larger than your digestive system. Right. So, so people's intelligence that has allowed them to, to get a tighter grasp on the world is basically a result of fire. Yeah. And then he just rolls yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. like an hour. I, I think I was telling you on that podcast, I was learning to be quiet. Mm. It was like let this. You remember guy what episode talk. that number that was? It's been. It's only been like a month ago. Okay, so, so it's in the sixties. Yeah. yeah, I I actually just read a book. What was the guy's name? B y n e Pine is his last name. Did he write a book? Oh yeah, he's written thirty five, but he's got. Did uh, he write a book called Catching Fire? Probably. That's probably his. This guy was. I don't know if this guy wasn't a outdoors guy though. The I I read a book called Catching Fire. Okay. Just in the last year, yeah, and it talked about how cooked food uh-huh. has more calories yep. than uncooked food, yep. and so humans being able to manipulate fire were the only animal yep. were the yep. only were the only thing that can manipulate fire, yep, and that enables us to have these the, big brains, yep. and then which and enables a small you to manipulate tract. fire, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, one of the things he said was like the Krebs cycle in the human cell, which causes your body to be 98.6 degrees, you know, uh-huh. is simply a controlled fire explosion, electronic explosion. Mm. He said, and, and we did the same thing with a pickup truck engine. Mm. And, you know, and you, you blow up this, you, you, you set fire to this gas, and then it turns the, the engine allowing you to drive your f-250 the same thing that's going on in your cells hmm, hmm. and uh, oh, i've checked that podcast it's out. just really like it it blew my mind and I, it wasn't my it, other people uh tom mcguain the novelist he's about 78 years old now he he gave me an interview that he's one of the funniest people that ever lived hmm. and he just rock and rolled for like an hour and 30 minutes about <laughs> hunting and fishing and writing <laughs> uh, uh. so that Check them one. out, and I'm gonna li- I'm gonna be listening to yours too. I was listening to that one y'all recorded this morning. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really good. Well, so. no, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Hal, Same. and uh, fish with you today. Even though I think you had the best spot in the boat, yeah, and so that's why you're catching all the fish. It was that braided line, man. <laughs> <laughs> but no. Hey, we all, I always say the same thing when I end the podcast. I say keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. Right on, man. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. 
Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.